Well, man, how do we shake off the messages that we picked up over the years? And, and wouldn't it be great if all of us would go back to somebody who put something in us? I mean, maybe some bitterness got deposited in us because of some unfair treatment or harsh words. And we just wish they would apologize for it. You see a video like that, and you're like, boy, I wish I could get free. I could shake off the bitterness. I could shake off the pain from the past or those bad messages I, I got engraved in my head or tattooed on my arm. But there's sometimes, like there's a lot of times, that in order to find freedom, it's going to be a battle of shaking messages off and dis- discerning what those are. And sometimes in our series, Battle Station, we're going to find that forgiving someone for something they did, it's going to require you learning how to forgive the unapologetic. Because <laughs> you're never going to get an apology from them. Either they didn't realize it, Or the same people who are cruel to you, the same reason they were cruel to you is the same reason they're never going to apologize to you. They're just clueless. And yet freedom is possible. You can shake off bitterness. You can live in freedom even if the other person never apologizes to you. And today we're going to show you how to go on that journey to get freedom. And to do that, I want you to hear the story of someone who has a tragic loss in her life, and she's able to forgive people who will never apologize to her because she so desperately wants to be free from bitterness and anger for the rest of her life. Let's listen. When we got back up in Channel 4, my office, every office had a television in it. So I went into my office and there was the television um, with the the breaking news tagline um, moving across the bottom of the screen and and I looked at the screen and could see that the um, World Trade Center was on fire so then my work colleague came in lady called Jane and she was have you seen this and I said oh yes and Simon's in the World Trade Center she said oh really and then as we stood and chatted about the fact that Simon was there, you know, if you tried to call him, uh, we literally watched as this black dot came across the sky and slammed into the side of the other building and exploded. At that point, I started trying to phone Simon, but I couldn't get through on his mobile. I tried to phone the office. You hold on to a framework of normality almost in at these moments. And so... We decided to, I decided that it would be best if we carried on with our HR meeting as I was working human resources. I said, well, let's just do the meeting because if I go home, he won't expect me to be at home. So just transfer the phone to me and we'll do the meeting. We talked about training, (laughs) all the things we were doing in the department. And then my colleague came in and told me that the buildings had collapsed. It was just nothing was the same. Nothing was normal. And... One of my friends came round um, to see what they could do and when we were saying goodbye, there was um, a, the doorbell rang and I answered the door and um, the press were on the doorstep and they, can we talk to Mrs Turner? And I said, oh, I'm Mrs Turner. Please could you make a comment about your husband's death yesterday in the World Trade Centre? And I just, I hadn't even got to that point. We were still trying to make contact and talking to his company and trying to find out what had happened. So from that day and right the way through until William was born, 
I couldn't answer my own door, I couldn't answer my phone. And, and it just all spiralled from there, just, you know, family liaison officer from the Met Police coming round and being asked to, of his distinguishing marks, so if they found him they could identify him and what was he wearing and what did he look like and all this time I'm sitting there being seven months pregnant. So I felt a huge responsibility to find a peaceful place with what had happened and the circumstances that I found myself in. And I had no idea how I was going to do that. Um, what I did know was a cycle of violence has to stop. And so, so started my journey um, of all I know is that I want to find peace in this circumstance. And so I looked at everything I could lay my hands on because I wanted to understand what are we here for? Why do we do this to each other? Why am I in this situation? How come I deserve to have my partner killed and end up being on my own as a single parent when that wasn't what I wanted in my life? For me, forgiveness is about being peaceful. It's about finding an inner peace about the cards that you have been handed in life. It's not necessarily that the pain's gone. It's not necessarily that, you know, everything's the way it was before. It's forgiveness is actually accepting that all of us as individuals contribute to the world in which we live. If I can choose um, a route forward in my life that is about which choice is peaceful, which choice respects others, which choice um, leaves something positive behind. And then if I can help other people to realize that those choices are available too, then the legacy of Simon's death is about that. And that's where the forgiveness lies. Let's pray together. Father, we are reminded that we are incredibly fragile. And if anything, the last couple of weeks here in our community have reminded us of just how fragile life is. And Father, we do need the tears of heaven to wash away the pain, the uncertainty, the, the questions, Father. Father, you tell us that when we pray, we're supposed to pray to deliver us from evil. So Father, ask for the voice of evil that has gone and uh, caused people to lose hope, the voice of evil that's told people they're alone and they're not cared for, that life would be better without them. For those who walked in the door today and the voice of evil is whispering and clawing at their back, Father, we just ask that you would uh, deliver us from the voice of evil, God, that you would be our daily bread. And Father, today you would teach us how to forgive, how to forgive others the way you've forgiven us that your kingdom, that your priorities, that your truths would become evident in our life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are fragile. And again, as you've been in our community for the last couple of weeks, you know we've had some gigantic funerals here. Not only seven days ago, we had another funeral here yesterday. About a 1,000 people attended. 
wrestling again with the issues of life and death and suicide and, and how to cope with uncertainty. As we've been going through the series on battle stations, we're, we're trying to figure out how to cope with life and how to deal with forgiveness. Even today as we talk about how to forgive the unforgivable, I think it's going to be helpful. Because I mentioned earlier, there's reasons why some people don't apologize. Some people don't apologize because they were cruel and nasty and that's why they did the mean things in the begin with. And they're never, you're, you're probably, people can do anything, but you're probably never going to get an apology. And your chance to be free, you don't want to anchor to somebody else's ability to control your life. Other times we don't get an apology from someone because they can't. You're finally ready to reconcile with your father and your father has Alzheimer's and doesn't recognize you. Or maybe you're finally able to forgive someone in your life and that person has passed away. I know many a friend who has walked out to a graveyard and read an apology or read a, Dad, I forgive you, Mom, I forgive you at a gravesite because they so wanted to be free. They were willing to forgive the unapologetic and went through the motions to do that. I know many over the years who have had someone in their life who, because of... Uh, because of challenges, the medical challenges that the person in their life was facing, mental health issues, maybe someone committed suicide, and they felt guilty that they were so angry at this person who had passed away. But they had to learn how to apologize to someone who had hurt them, even if it was coming out of a place of hurt themselves. There's other of us, the reason we're never going to get an apology is because that person is just never going to learn how to do it. We wish they would. We wish they would go through the work of learning the steps, what a real apology sounds like, what it is to be empathetic, what it is to own what they do, but they're just never going to do it. And I don't want you to miss out on freedom because you've put your freedom in the hands of someone else. In fact, did you know the word apology? Actually, it used to mean not to, to own what you've done wrong. It used to mean to defend yourself. Plato has what was called the, the Apology of Socrates, where he defended the words of Socrates. And so apology wasn't somebody who owned what they did. It was somebody who actually defended what they'd said. I was telling my wife this this week. She struggles with apology. She's gotten much better over 25 years of marriage, but she grew up in a family that never apologized and just, you know, says something louder at you and shoots you when you say something wrong. And so I told her, I said, you know, honey, the apology originally for hundreds of years, it actually meant to defend yourself. And she said, see, I told you I've been doing it right. It wasn't actually until uh, William Shakespeare changed the word. He loved playing with words, and he changed the word. The first time apology meant owning what you've done was actually in Richard III when he said, My Lord, there needs no such apology. It was the first time apology meant you owning what you had done. And in our battle stations concept, I want to help you move toward freedom. And here's what I want to tell you. Whether somebody apologizes or not, uh, apologizes or not you can hoist the anchor in your own life. And hoisting the anchor so you can be free, so you can move on, hoisting the anchor does not mean you're docking with another ship. doesn't mean you have to be their best friend. It doesn't mean you're going to go into battle with them like you trust them anymore. There's a real distinction between hoisting the anchor, I'm going to be free even if you don't apologize, and docking with another ship, becoming best friends, trusting them again, going into battle, believing they have your back. And that's why in this series we've looked at three different stages of forgiveness. Forgiveness, hoist the anchor. I'm going to be free no matter what you do or what you say. I'm open to reconciliation that one day we might trust each other and we might restore a relationship, but that's going to be based on two people wanting to do it and you can't control what other people do. 
And that's going to take time and evidence to restore trust. And I can trust that you're going to have my back if we go to battle together, if we go into business again together, if we, we try and rebuild this marriage together. And so today I want to tell you that you can hoist the anchor and be free regardless of whether or not you get an apology. And I want to give you some specific steps to do that. Four, in fact. The first, as weird as this sounds, it's going to be so freeing if you get it. Stop waiting for evil people to do good things. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but you've said, you know, I am not going to move on. I am not going to let go. I am not going to forgive them until they apologize. But think about whoever it is that did whatever they did to you. If you are so unable to let go of that, it's probably because it was pretty evil and pretty intentional and pretty cruel, right? And what's the chances that somebody who did something that mean, that cruel, that boneheaded, that stupid, is going to suddenly go, you know what, i got to go apologize for that. And you have put your freedom in the hands of evil people and expecting evil people to do good things. In the book of Acts, we see a man named Stephen, and he's just given a powerful sermon about Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, and how Jesus can forgive you no matter what you've done. And he's talking specifically to a group of people who had crucified Jesus, the religious leaders of the day. He said, listen, you did horrible things, you did terrible things, but there is a God who wants to forgive you if you will own it, if you'll step into it. He wants to forgive you. But we've got a history of not owning our junk. And the people hear this powerful sermon, you know how they respond? They pick up rocks... And they throw rocks and stone Stephen and try and kill him for it. After they'd heard these things about God's forgiveness, they were cut to the teeth. They gnashed their teeth at him with their teeth. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And that's not like stone the way we think of it today. This is picking up rocks and throwing it at him. They were stoning Stephen. They were out to kill him. And what's amazing about Stephen is even in this moment when his life is under threat, even with people who are evil, he's not reconciling with them. He's not letting off the hook. They should be taken to justice and they should be held in a court of law. But even though all those things should happen, he still in this very moment wants to be free. And he's going to forgive the unapologetic people stoning him. Amazing. You'll see what he says in just a moment. But the first principle for your own freedom is stop waiting for evil people to do good things. Hoist the anchor and move on. It's time for you to take ownership of your own freedom. My daughter was in college a couple years ago and I got a note on Facebook. said, Dad, I'd love to go on an adventure when I get home this summer. Which I love going on adventures with my kids. And she said, how would you like to go see Thomas Edison's personal yacht? Well, that sounded pretty nice. So I looked it up, and here's what a picture of Thomas Edison's yacht looked like in its day. Like, oh, I'd love to see that. It was interesting because it was a steel ship. In fact, it was a steel ship, so it was commandeered by the U.S. government in World War I and World War II and then returned to its private owner both times. So this thing has really had a huge, huge background. Thomas Edison's yacht, it then became known as the uh, USS Hatcham. I said, well, how could we see this thing? She said, well, it turns out that it's docked near Cincinnati. So we got on my two jet skis and we got in at Rivertown Marina and turns out it takes you an hour on the Ohio River at about 60 miles an hour on the river to get there. It's right across the river from uh, uh, Indianapolis. And when you get there, right across, not Indianapolis, right across the river from uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. 
It's a 45-minute drive on jet ski to get there. And I had just been sitting in my office with a friend who attends our church. It's a couple years ago. His sister had just committed suicide, and we were wrestling through all the challenges of why this happened and what happened and, and could she be forgiven and was there hope. We got done with just this real heavy conversation. I said, hey, do you want to not think about this for a while? He said, I would love to not think about this for a while. I said, how'd you like to go on an adventure with me and go see Thomas Edison's yacht? He said, I would love to do that. So he's on the back of the jet ski. My daughter and my son Quinn are on another jet ski. And we're like, vroom. And we go down and I got Google Map out on my jet ski. And sure enough, it says the USS Satcham. It is right here. And we're on the Ohio River. And it's like there's nothing but mud on both sides. And I'm like, it's supposed to be right here. And we go up to this tree. I'm like this small little tree with a big branch on my jet ski. And I push it aside. And I wouldn't even call it a river. I'd call it a creek bed. Like six, eight foot wide. And we go underneath that. We push over the branch. And sure enough, about 15 feet in front of us, we come across this. And here's what it looks like. The USS Satchin. It's been sitting there for decades. It's got six to eight inches of dirt in it. Trees and grass and bushes growing out of it. We climbed up on top, we went to the back, and you can actually climb down the stairs into the boiler room. It's six foot deep with just muddy water. And I thought to myself, my goodness, this piece of treasure, this piece of U.S. history is just sitting in a mud pit 45 minutes from here. And as a pastor, as a pastoral team, I got to tell you, over the years, 25 plus years in ministry, there are so many people whose inner souls, whose inner lives look just like that. The anchor has been dropped, they have run aground, and they're saying, I am not going to move on until someone else apologizes. And you're not hurting the evil person. They could care less, right? You're just grounding your own soul in the muck. And for the sake of your own freedom and your own soul, it's time to hoist the anchor and say, I want to move on. I'm not going to lose one more minute, not one more month, not one more year, not one more decade of my life. I don't want to get stuck waiting for somebody else to apologize. I read a book this year called Small Fry. It's written by Lisa Jobs, one of Steve Jobs' daughters. And a little bit gossipy. Uh, who knows you know, what percentage of it is true, but oh my goodness, unbelievable story about what a tyrant Steve Jobs was, not just as a business leader, but as a dad. He wouldn't even acknowledge she was his daughter until they finally got the DNA test, and part of that's understandable. But they get the DNA test, and then he allows his daughter and her mother to live in poverty for years, decade, I think, and he just doesn't even give any payments, doesn't help in any way, and they're begging for money, and they're living off welfare, and he's doing fine. The public, Apple's about to go public, and he does, he's about to become a millionaire, and so he quickly gets his lawyers to pay as little as possible, gets them to sign the deal right before he goes public and becomes a millionaire. She goes and lives with him a few times and just says, he just always said things like, you know, you're fat, you stink. She had to sleep in the living room. They wouldn't even fix the air conditioning downstairs because they were doing a remodel at the time. One day he said, hey, I want you to dress him, come to a wedding with me. And she got her first wedding dress and was hoping to go uh, to her first wedding. And just as they were about to leave, he said, well, I'm gonna, I want you to stay here and babysit my son. Just incredibly cruel behavior. And she's writing this book and she said, I decided to forgive my dad. And I didn't think I would ever get an apology from my dad. He was not an apology kind of guy. But I decided I wanted to be free. 
What's pretty amazing is when her dad, when Steve Jobs was dying, she came to his bedside. And he pulled her close. And he said, Honey, I guess I owe you one. Huh. That was his apology, which is more than he'd ever given. Lisa tells that one time she and her dad and Bono were together, and Bono asked the question she'd been asking for years but never got a straight answer. Bono said, by the way, the Lisa Apple computer, was that named after your daughter? And for the first time, his dad her dad acknowledged that she had named a computer after her, even though he had treated her so cruelly. What struck me about the book was here was somebody who forgave her dad before she got the sort of halfway effort and apology because she wanted to be free. She stopped waiting for evil, dysfunctional, cold people at least to do good things. The second thing is to try and, to try and see the circumstance from God's perspective. Stephen is being stoned at that moment and he looks up. It's interesting the words he uses. God gives him a vision and whether you believe in visions or not, I think the point, I, I do believe this really happened. But even if you don't, the, the principle is so powerful. Stephen looks up and God lets him see heaven. And in heaven he sees God standing there and Jesus standing there. Look what it says. He said he saw the Holy Spirit. He's, he gets empowered by the Spirit to forgive. He gazes. He looks at his situation from God's perspective. He gazes into heaven and he saw, there's the word saw again, the glory of God, the full extent of who God was. And having seen that, it says, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is so significant in Christian theology. Because in Christian theology, Jesus did all the work on the cross. Then he raised himself from the dead. Then he ascended to heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, doesn't have to stand up for anybody or anything. And Stephen sees God's perspective that Jesus Christ who died and rose, God himself stands up to welcome Stephen into heaven. The man who does not have to stand up for anyone is standing up to say, Stephen, well done. Welcome to my kingdom. There are great rewards for what you are doing and he's going to choose to forgive his enemies because he sees God's perspective. He's empowered by God's spirit for the strength he's going to need, for the forgiveness he's going to need, for the, for the wisdom he's going to need. And this difference between the seeing and the gazing, he says, I looked, I look, he says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and he's calling on God saying, Lord Jesus. He saw Jesus as God. And when you look at your circumstance and realize that, number one, whatever was done wrong against you was ultimately a wrong against God. And two, there is great rewards. In the same way Jesus stands up to welcome Stephen, he wants to stand up and say, welcome to freedom. Welcome to freedom. Even if they're never going to apologize, come over here. Welcome to freedom. You don't want to miss out on freedom just because they're not going to do the right thing. Let me wrap my arms around. Let me help give you comfort. Let me help put some balm on that pain in your life. I want you to be healed. I was reading the news recently. In Egypt, there's a man named Mustafa, Muslim family, and his cousin Muhammad decided to convert to Christianity. And this is a horrifically big deal in Egypt. So when Muhammad, the rumors had that he'd become a Christian, that he'd recognized Jesus died on the cross, and the, the Quran, if you haven't read the Quran before, it denies Jesus was even crucified. It says that somebody else was, and they mistook him. But God would never let one of his prophets die on a cross. 
So his family in Egypt told Mustafa to go seek out, spy out his cousin, and if he really had converted, to kill him in an honor killing. So Mustafa circled around and found this little church that Muhammad was attending, and he went in. He sat in the back, and he listened to the music and the prayers. And he stayed for the whole experience, and instead of anger welling up in him, or even seeing these Christians angry at people, he saw them speaking of forgiveness and forgiving their enemies and loving other people and being filled with peace and joy. He found his cousin after the service and said, I want to talk to you. Family told me to come and spy out and see if you've become a Christian. I see you have. He said, well, what I experienced today is not the kind of religion I grew up with. It's not a God you just know his will, that you can know God personally. I think you might have made the right choice. Could you tell me more about this, Jesus? I've never seen love like this. I've never seen a perspective like this. So his cousin took him home and began to talk to him about Jesus' death, the evidence for it, the archaeological research for it, what it meant that God could forgive anyone of anything, and what it meant that you can forgive your enemies because you were God's enemy and he forgave you. That night, Mustafa, like many people, if you Google this, many people who've converted from Islam to Christianity will speak of having a vision of Jesus appearing to them. And he had a vision appear to him that night. And he said, Jesus appeared to him and said, I died on the cross because I love you and I want to have a relationship with you. And one encounter with grace, one encounter with God's perspective, and it totally changed a man who was going to kill his cousin, befriended his cousin, and began a whole new way of life. The third thing that you're going to have to do if you really want to get free is you're going to have to hand over. I talked about this the first week. I'm going to go a little deeper. You're going to have to hand over judgment to a better judge. One of the reasons it's so difficult to let go, one of the reasons it's so difficult to get free is because right now you're the judge and you're keeping track. If they're not going to apologize, somebody's got to hold them accountable. If they're not going to apologize, somebody's got to remember this. And handing this over to a better judge means I'm going to trust God to do what I've been wearing myself out doing. And look how Stephen does it. He uses a very specific phrase. When he looks up, he doesn't just say he saw God. He doesn't just say he saw the Lord Jesus. He says, I saw the Son of Man. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament in Daniel that there's God appears as what's called the Ancient of Days, this powerful vision. But then Daniel looks up, lying in the dens, the, Daniel lines then Daniel. He looks up in his vision. He sees God, the Ancient of Days. Then he sees this other person with God he calls the Son of Man. And he's like God, only he's a man. He's the God-man. And Daniel can't quite figure out what a God-man is doing next to God. And, and they're the same, but they're different. And he can't quite figure it out. He can't quite articulate what it is. But the God-man, known as the Son of Man, becomes the judge. And he's, he's given all the power and all the kingdoms and all the authority to hold everybody accountable for, for the rest of time. Jesus shows up. You know what his favorite nickname for himself is? I'm the Son of Man. I think that's just kind of a nice comment about being humble. No. He's using a very specific term from the book of Daniel. That he is the God-man who's going to be given all the kingdom and all the authority. And when Stephen looks up and sees heaven open, he recognizes Jesus as the son of man, the better judge that he can hand the situation over to. God, you take care of judging what these people are doing to me. I want to be free from that burden. I want to be free from keeping track. I want to be free from having to, to figure out who gets how many lightning bolts when. And that becomes the journey of his freedom. Even in these final hours, he hands judgment over to a better judge.
don't know if you remember, but last year about this time, Billy Graham passed away. And Billy Graham had an incredible legacy of telling people about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the main message of the Bible, Jesus, his death, the power of forgiveness and freedom in your life. What you may not know, or the person you may not know a lot about, is his grandson. There's his grandson, Tullian. Tullian tells what it was like to live with his grandfather, and just he was a man of integrity and a man of grace, and everything you'd ever heard about Billy Graham was true as a grandson. He said, I thought of my dad, the, the voice who had talked with prime ministers and advised presidents, and he held me in his arms. When I got old enough to recognize how important my grandfather was, Daddy Bill, as they called him, he said, I used to pray, God, make me like Billy. Make me like Daddy Bill. I want integrity like that. I want to have respect like that. I want to have impact like that. And he became a pastor of a Presbyterian church. He had a lot of influence in a real big church. But he did not become like Daddy Bill. He destroyed his reputation. He destroyed his marriage. And just last year, I was reading his blog. It's so powerful about how he began to really need forgiveness and what God did in his life. He said, in a season of sin and self-destruction, egotistical pride and selfish ambition, unfaithfulness to my wife and unfaithfulness to the church, I lost everything and I hurt many people in the process. In 2015, at 41 years old, I broke my life. I broke my family. And I broke the hearts of those who trusted me and looked to me for leadership. Through heaving tears of sorrow and shame, regret and remorse, I sent this note to a friend of mine a couple days after Daddy Bill's death. Watching my grandfather's life, it, it just hit me afresh how selfish and arrogant I was, how much I squandered, and for what? For what? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Character matters. It, it does not gain us favor with God, but it does give us credibility with others so that he can deliver God's favor to us. But I blew it. I'm undone. And he says, my friend sent back six words. There was a man named David. And I lost it. If you don't know the story of David, yes, he knocked over a Goliath in a mighty battle. But at the peak of his life in his 40s, he has an affair. He tries to hide it. The husband of his mistress, he sends off to battle, purposely pulls the battlefront back to have him killed. And despite totally trashing his reputation, totally destroying everything God entrusted him with, God continues to call him by the end of his life a man after God's own heart because he incorporated the forgiveness of God. He had the perfect word to me at just the right time. It was the powerful and comforting remedy and reminder I needed at the moment that God loves and uses people who fail because people who fail are all there are. Maybe you need that reminder too. Yes, there was a man named David. But even more powerful and comforting is like the good news that there is a man named Jesus. See, unlike Daddy Bill, I soiled my record. Regardless of how I live my life from now until the day I die, my season of sinful self-destruction will always be remembered and talked about. The hurt I caused myself, the countless others will linger in the and countless others will linger in many hearts and cause many to doubt me, disparage me, and distrust me for the rest of my life. I've accepted that my blemished reputation is here to stay. There's no going back. But I believe that if Daddy Bill were still alive, he'd say something like this to me. 
Tullian, I may not be guilty externally of the same things that you've done, but I assure you that my heart is no less sinful than yours. According to God's standard of perfection, I'm a failure just like you. The tributes speak to what people saw, but the gospel, the forgiveness of God, speaks to what God sees. And that's what the main message of the Bible is, that it's not about people who do everything right. It's about people who find forgiveness and are willing to own and apologize for what they've done wrong. And when you own it, God brings forgiveness into your life and grace into your life and hope and a new, a new identity based not on what you do for God, but what he did for you. And that's why our fourth stage is so powerful. You're able to forgive the unapologetic when you realize you were forgiven as an apologetic. You see, no matter how religious a person is or how strong a Christian is, I don't know anyone who has had enough self-awareness to at the moment that they ask God for forgiveness, they apologize for everything they did. In fact, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I follow God, the more I'm aware of just how screwed up and messed up my thoughts really are. How selfish I can be, how narrow-minded I can be. And the, the, the closer I get to God, the more I'm able to see just how much He forgave me for, how much I didn't yet apologize for. And when you realize that God was able to pursue you and forgive you and and initiate with you when you weren't owning your own stuff, when you were blind to your own mistakes, when you weren't apologizing for everything you've done, it's out of what he did for you, forgiving you as unapologetic, that you're able to do unto others as he's done unto you. That's why it's so powerful. Stephen is there seeing God, recognizing him as judge, And then he says three things that are identical to what Jesus did on the cross a few years earlier, a few months earlier. He says this. They're stoning Stephen. And Stephen calls out on God and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And if you've ever walked through the stations of the cross, or you've ever read about Jesus' last hours, it's the exact thing Jesus, while being pounded on the cross, he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Where did Stephen get this speech? From what Jesus did for him. And then Stephen cries out in a loud voice. Same thing happened to Jesus. Very unheard of to cry in a loud voice. You couldn't get enough breath to even whisper on a cross, let alone a loud voice. The Roman centurion is struck that Jesus, in such a commanding presence, could cry out in a loud voice, It is finished! But Stephen has the same kind of boldness when he's being stoned. In a loud voice he says, Lord, Do not charge them with this sin. Where did he get that speech? What Jesus did for him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To charge means to hold to their account. See, Stephen recognized his own need for forgiveness, that God had forgiven him when he was unapologetic. So he was able to do unto others what God had done unto him. See, as a church, we want to be a place not for perfect people, because then this place would be empty. For gossipy people and self-centered people and hurtful people, people who have bad thoughts and lustful thoughts, people who break their own promises, people who don't go their own way. This is a place not to whitewash those things and not think they're a big deal. They're a big deal. But to show that there is a God who's bigger than that, that can help draw you near, can accept you where you are, and begin to teach you a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, because now He's with you. 
And it's out of his forgiveness and acceptance, by yanking condemnation and shame and putting it out of the way, you begin to have the, the power and the engine to change. That's who we are as a church. When we do funerals, when we meet with families, when we go serve here, near, and far, we are trying to bring the truth of grace and forgiveness into people's lives. In fact, over the last year, you know, we've talked about how we continue to do that. The elders just this week met. And after all of the generous giving and the generous serving that had been done by this church, we just felt like we had the confidence to move forward with the project we've been talking about. That we're going to even get new tools to bear to be able to take and take the message to the world. We're going to put in some, some video cameras. We're going to install a video booth this year. The contractors have come back and they are going to start construction here coming in the summer. We're going to start doing live stream and video on demand. We're going to have an app so you can watch services and pass those on and tell people, hey, I know you're struggling with discouragement. Here's a message about depression. Hey, your marriage is having some issues. Here's a message to help me. Apps and live streams and video streams. These are things that we want to just create more tools to try and help people experience the grace and the freedom of God. So for those of you who gave for the last year to be part of that, I want to say thank you. For those of you who haven't yet and want to be part of where the church is headed, these things always cost more than you think. And there's additional costs with apps and things like that. So if you, if you feel like God is helping bring freedom to you and you want to help bring freedom to others, maybe God will call you to do that. But let's, as a church, be a place of truth and grace and freedom. And this morning, make this the day you're no longer stuck in the mud that you hoist the anchor. So pick one of these battle stations. Which one do you most need to wrestle with to move forward? Which of these four? Do you need to stop waiting for evil people to do good things? Is it time for you to hoist the anchor and not lose another month or decade of your life? Make this the day. Is this the time you see this from God's perspective and realize there's great rewards? He's standing, welcome you into freedom. Is this the time today that you're going to hand the situation, hand that person over to a better judge and say, you take care of this, I've worn myself out trying? Or do you need the humility of recognizing you too were unapologetic about a lot of things and God was willing to initiate with you? Maybe it's more than one, but there's probably one that's a stick factor for you. Several years ago, I felt like somebody cheated me financially, pretty big deal, and I was angry. I tried to negotiate, I tried to reason, I tried to talk through it, and there just was no response except you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it was just eating me, just eating me. And I just couldn't get free, but I wanted to get free. And they weren't going to change, and they weren't going to change their mind. And I'd heard from a, through a grapevine that, that this group needed a resource that I had access to. It was on, actually something I personally owned. And so here's somebody that I was bitter at, somebody who cheated me, who needed something I had. They didn't know that I had it, and they didn't know that I knew that they needed it. I was praying in my office one day, and I felt like God was saying, Chad, it's kind of an impression I had. It was like an audible voice, but Chad, I want you to go give that resource to those people. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Every day for about a week. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said those things. Grabbed this thing. Went over to meet. People weren't there. Secretary. Heard you guys need something. Here it is. Hope you enjoy it. 
That's how I felt on the inside. I looked on the outside like I was a really wonderful pastor. Oh, I can help out. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I can tell you exactly when that day was. I walked out of that building free. And that was worth the cost of anything. I don't know how it works. Why Jesus says to pray for your enemies and bless those that persecute you. But I'll tell you this. That day, I have not struggled with bitterness from that moment on in that situation. And I want that for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of freedom. Thank you for the invitation to freedom. And teach us how to pursue freedom this Lent season. For those here today who need hope, Father, would your spirit just give them hope? For those who need joy, would you restore the joy? For those who need deliverance from evil thoughts, Father, would you just cast out those evil thoughts? For those who need forgiveness and to move forward in forgiveness, would you offer them freedom today? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But before you leave, I want to invite you to our Easter services coming up, surprisingly, on Easter. On Easter weekend, we're going to have seven services. There's going to be three on Saturday and four on Sunday. Complimentary tickets are available today in the rear atrium if you want to pick those up. Services are at three, four, and five. We also have the uh, helicopter egg drop. We have two of those. You can get tickets for that as well for you and your kids or grandkids. Or we have four services, 850, 10, 1110, and we add an additional Sunday service at 1220. We can't wait to see you for Easter. Thanks for being here today.